You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. So welcome guys to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with me, Owen Walker. Today's um, topic for the podcast is on club drugs, illegal highs and novel psychoactive substances. And no better way to tackle this subject with Dr. Owen Bowden-Jones. So Owen is a consultant psychiatrist with over 20 years experience in general and substance misuse psychiatry in both the NHS and private practice. In 2010, he founded the Club Drug Clinic, offering treatment specifically for those using club drugs such as cocaine, ketamine, MDMA, GBH, GBL, and novel psychoactive substances. So welcome to the podcast, Owen. Thank you very much, Owen. Very nice to talk to you. The two Owens today. Indeed, indeed, indeed. It's fantastic to uh, to get you onto the onto the podcast, Owen. Um, I think one of the, one of the reasons why I'm really keen to have this conversation is is um, is twofold, really. One really is that um, the, the, I think the club drug and uh, illegal high and or psychoactive substance environment or landscape is constantly changing. And number two is, as, as, as paramedics, we, 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 we seem to be one of a cadre of frontline staff that are interacting with this, this, this landscape on a constantly changing basis. And it, it, so it's, I, I think it certainly plays into, into one, of, uh, one of the sort of lesser known um, t- subject domains for, our, for our, our, uh, our practice. Is that, is, is that something that you have seen over the last few years, Owen? Well, very much, actually. I'd really agree with that because there's a a lot of misinformation uh, around these substances, a lot of confusion around them. And often uh, it's the pre-hospital care which are having to make the first clinical decisions around managing the the harms. And so I I, I was very, very excited when you mentioned doing this podcast because I really do think that there's an opportunity to... um, clarify and simplify some of the some of this issue fantastic absolutely so i guess i mean there's no better way to start than really maybe start at a few definitions so i just wanted to look at your perspective of of novel psychoactive substances so club drugs and illegal highs i suppose speak for themselves and we will dig into the details of those but from your perspective um, what are novel psychoactive substances well so um, th- there are three or four different terms that, that are banded around and, and they do overlap and they do create some confusion. So uh, I think it's really worth going through this in a bit of detail. So novel psychoactive substances are essentially psychoactive substances that sit outside of international drug laws. Uh, and th- those were also sometimes called legal highs. So because they are technically legal, um, that uh, they were uh, at some point sold uh, and marketed as legal highs. But that term now, uh, legal high term, is not used uh, so, so often. And then we've got another group of drugs called club drugs. And these are things like ketamine, MDMA, GHB. Now, these drugs are under uh, uh, international control. But obviously, there's an overlap sometimes between people who use a mixture of novel psychoactive substances and club drugs. So the, the terminology in this area is really quite confusing. And the way that certainly I try and help people navigate this 
is to think perhaps not so much about the legal context, but to try and think more about the psychoactive effect. And the way I do this is I suggest that people try and think about the primary psychoactive um, effect of, of a drug and dividing that into drugs that are broadly stimulant, broadly sedative, and broadly hallucinogenic. And by taking that approach, the majority of both the club drugs and the novel psychoactive substances can be put in one of those categories. That's fantastic. Absolutely. I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll drill down into those three types or domains of, um, <clears throat> of, of, of active substances. So the sedatives, the stimulants and the hallucinogens. Hallucinogens. We'll we'll look at those three different domains uh, because I think it's really important to to um, both, like you said, subcategorize them and then look at some of the common substance misuse in all three of those of those domains. But just to pivot slightly, uh, Owen, and look at um, just the the, the so sort of the recent shifts in drug usage according to age. Has there been a shift in age demographics um, over the past five years that you've seen? maybe anecdotally? Well, it varies very much from area to area and country to country. So broadly speaking, if you look at a time frame of maybe 15 to 20 years, then the, uh, uh, the number of people using psychoactive drugs has actually been falling um, fairly steadily uh, over that sort of time frame. If you look, however, over a five-year time frame, what we've seen is an uptick uh, in use, particularly in younger people uh, over the last couple of years. And obviously, a couple of years is, uh, is a short time to, to make comments about a trend, but we're, we're very concerned, really, about the uh, increase in drug use uh, by, by younger people. And by younger, I mean people under, uh, sort of from their mid-20s down. Indeed, indeed, absolutely, and I, so from my anecdotal clinical experience, that seems to be um, a an age group that I interface with uh, in uh, and have done in clinical practice um, very much so. And I think we'll 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 drill into some of the reasons why um, a little bit later in the podcast. But from your again, from your contemporary experience, Owen. Um, in the clinic that you run, what are the sort of current top five drug? Um, um, abuse substances that you see in the clinic? Well, the clinic we run is, is an interesting one because it has very strong links to our local sexual health services. And we, uh, for example, run, out, run satellite services within the sexual health uh, services. Uh, the other uh, thing that's unusual about our clinic is that we also run services into local student health centres. So in a way, we're already accessing um, younger groups uh, than perhaps other drug services might do. The other thing that's unusual about the club drug clinic is that we don't treat um, drugs such as heroin, crack cocaine and alcohol. So if you go into, if you look at, across the UK at uh, drug treatment services, you will find that the majority um, of people are using heroin, crack cocaine, and then alcohol is probably the third most common, commonly used drug within drug services. And you'll also find the typical age of uh, patients attending uh, those drug services will probably be in their 40s. 
And these are probably people who have started uh, using heroin uh, probably 10, 15, even 20 years ago. And so they'll be quite long-standing users who will typically be going, um, uh, going to the services for opioid uh, substitution treatment. Where the club drug clinic is really very different is that we don't, um, we explicitly don't treat uh, heroin, crack cocaine, uh, or alcohol if that's the primary uh, drug problem. And instead, as the name suggests, we have set ourselves up as a service that treats everything else. And so the drugs that we tend to see are the club drugs, uh, but also, interestingly, quite a, a, a large number of people who misuse prescription medicines, uh, things like pregabalin, uh, ritalin, and, and the benzodiazepines. And so our top drugs uh, are things like GHB, uh, methamphetamine, uh, ketamine, um, and prescription medicines. So a very different uh, uh, using profile uh, to what you might come across in, in a traditional drug service. Indeed, absolutely. So, so looking at, at at sort of just maybe the broader terms of drug abuse versus prevalence, because I'm um, uh, on previous conversations with you, I'm acutely aware just even interfacing with with you and 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 getting into your in, into your mind, you know, the prevalence data and or statistics are quite different to the drug abuse. Um, data or statistics, because actually prevalence may, may or may not spill into uh, healthcare, because um, as, as you're aware, and certainly as I've, I've seen, some very functional sort of drug, uh, drug, usage, drug, drug users or, or drug usage um, that doesn't necessarily spill into healthcare, but drug abuse, again, is, 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 is probably where hopefully people are starting to get help. Uh, and or accessing services such as GPs or in prisons or indeed in within pre-hospital care. So, so I, I guess they're, they're two different they're two different domains. But from a from a so from a from a drug prevalence perspective that we may or may not be privileged enough or indeed insightful enough to see in in healthcare. Uh, is there any is there any difference in in, in those in those two domains? Well, absolutely. So you, you, you raise an absolutely critical point, which is that uh, the prevalence of use of a particular drug does not translate into harm. So different drugs have different levels of harm. So if you look at a population level, the most commonly used uh, illicit drug in the UK by far is cannabis. Uh, and that's followed by uh, cocaine and MDMA. So uh, if we then look at the treatment services, as I've mentioned, um, the, the, the top drug by far is heroin, followed by crack cocaine. So what we're seeing is relatively small numbers of people at a population level use heroin and crack cocaine, but the harms they accrue from that, those harmful, more harmful drugs leads them into treatment. Uh, whereas at uh, the same time, many, many more people use cannabis, but as a drug that's less harmful than heroin, we're seeing far fewer people uh, actually requiring formal structured uh, specialist drug treatment for their cannabis use. And a good recent example um, is nitrous oxide, which uh, appears to be a bit of a fad at the moment. Uh, it's, it's hard to walk around London without seeing the small silver uh, sort of capsules uh, on, on the floor. And so there's been a very significant increase in the population prevalence, largely by young people, of nitrous oxide use, 
But what we have not seen is our, our clinics filling uh, with nitrous oxide users because the, rel the harm of that drug is relatively uh, less than many of the other club drugs that we see. Indeed, indeed. And I was, I was actually going to, going to mention that uh, later on in the podcast, because that's certainly the case, um, certainly where I live in London, you know, you can't move for seeing these little silver canisters um, all over the floor, uh, unfortunately. And, um, and uh, it seems to be certainly uh, uh, more popularist um, to use it, to, to use uh, to nitrous oxide in this, in, the, in this fashion. Um, absolutely. So, so that actually notions towards another question I, I wanted to ask, actually, Owen, around emergent drug use, and and looking at um, and looking at just the, the emergent trends versus the historic trends, because you, you notions towards maybe heroin not necessarily being a drug of the past, but you know, the, the typical users or, or, or drug abusers seem to be, you know. 10, 15 years of uh, historic use um, versus dr drug use and or abuse now, which it doesn't necessarily overlap or there isn't, doesn't seem to be necessarily the same emergent drug use in, in, in say, some of the younger, younger patterns. Is that certainly what you've seen in practice? Well, if you look at the uh, prevalence data, you're absolutely right. What we're seeing is an ageing cohort of heroin users who began using heroin in the 80s and 90s and have uh, continued a relapsing and remitting course uh, during the, the, the past 20 years. And typically that's been on and off uh, opioid substitution treatment. Now those users, um, obviously some have recovered and don't need treatment in, in, anymore, but a, a significant number have continued in treatment and found that a very difficult uh, drug to, to conquer. Um, what we're not seeing is large numbers of young people uh, using heroin. Uh, in some ways, heroin, I suppose, has developed such a stigma among young people that they do see that very differently uh, to some of the club drugs. So, for example, I will often meet someone perhaps in their 20s and ask them which drugs they'll use, and they'll very comfortably and casually tell me that they use MDMA and uh, ketamine and uh, amphetamine sometimes and benzodiazepines. And then when I mention heroin, they look at me in horror uh, that I would even suggest that they might be the type of person who uses heroin. So there does seem to be a very sort of um, unusual sort of internal stigma between drug users around specific drugs. And certainly what we're seeing is we're, we're not seeing uh, younger people uh, desiring or, or, or beginning to use heroin at the moment. Now, of course, one of the one of the complexities about this field is that the drug markets are very dynamic. They change very, very rapidly. Things come in and out of fashion quite quickly, uh, and so it's it's very hard to predict the future. So, what I'm not saying is that we don't need to worry about heroin anymore. Um, heroin is one of the most destructive drugs, as, as we can see from our, our uh, current uh, drug treatment population. So it would be very, very important not to take our eye off the ball with heroin. But at the moment, uh, it does seem that if you're focusing on younger people, then we need to be thinking about different drugs. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so Owen, I'd like just to drill down into a few the, the few subdomains that you mentioned earlier, if that's okay. So, the main groups, as you mentioned, being sort of the sedatives or dissociates, uh, the stimulants, 
and then there may be the, the uh, hallucinogens or the sort of synthetic cannabinoids. So let's maybe just take the sedatives uh, first and foremost, because this certainly is has been part of my anecdotal practice, and I think every paramedic has has probably had to use um, had, had had to use not, uh, naloxone at some point to to reverse some of the effects of maybe one of the most common sedative drugs being being opiate drugs. Interestingly, um, that there is other drugs out there which uh, sedative drugs. One of which I very much gave as a critical care paramedic, which was ketamine, um, and it had it's very much had a dissociative uh, sedative effect. Um, but um, uh, sort of the heroin uh, and and ketamine are these are these sort of two of the main. I, I know there's also GBH, which um, GBH stands for uh, gamma hydroxybutyrate. Is that right? Ga- gamma hydroxybutyrate. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So uh, which also has very much a, a, a sedative effect. Is there any others apart from those maybe three that that, that really feature on your radar? Well, I, 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 again, maybe a, a good way to frame this is to think about how the club drugs and the novel psychoactive substances uh, sort of came about. And particularly the novel psychoactive substances are really an attempt to mimic the effects of traditional drugs. Um, and so for each traditional drug, you are now finding a synthetic uh, equivalent. So if we just think about the drug groups, if you've got a sedative drug like heroin, you now have a range of uh, uh, novel psychoactive opioids, uh, which include fentanyl and the fentanyl analogues. If you think about stimulant drugs, a sort of traditional stimulant drug would be something like cocaine. Um, And the newer version or the attempt to copy it is with a, a group of synthetic drugs called cathinones. And similarly with uh, hallucinogenic drugs, things like traditional ones like LSD or or magic mushrooms, perhaps, um, there are now a range of uh, quite potent uh, novel psychoactive um, uh, versions of these uh, uh, hallucinogenic drugs. So in each case, the the novel psychoactive substances are really an attempt to uh, mimic or copy the effects of traditional uh, illicit drugs. Absolutely, indeed. So you mentioned cathinones there, actually. And the first, I, I, I never really knew about cathinones until I, I interacted with a, a younger patient, actually, a younger male patient that was being held down by about seven police officers and had been taking bath salts. And I think that's a, a synthetic cathinone and did a bit of background research and due, due diligence on, on cathinones and, 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 and sort of the acute behavioral disturbance that he was experiencing as, as a result and effective of, of the cathinones was profound. Um, do, do, do you tend to find, do you, do you tend to find that, 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 that this acute behavioral disturbance is, is a sequelae, a, quite a common sequelae of some of these novel psychoactive substances or, or, or not really so much? Well, what's interesting is that novel psychoactive substances, although they're an attempt to mimic uh, traditional existing psychoactive drugs, what's off, what often happens is that the new synthetic equivalents end up being more potent than the drugs they're trying to copy. And so you can end up with these quite dramatic clinical presentations when people use them. Now, the system we have at the moment is that um, many of these uh, new psychoactive drugs are 
simply sort of cooked up um, by uh, chemists, uh, chucked onto the uh, illicit drug market without any testing, just to see whether people like them or not. And the ones that people perceive are too strong, they, they tend to disappear off the market very quickly. Uh, but the, you do end up with these situations where you see clusters of acute presentations where a new psychoactive substance has been sort of released onto the market. A group of people have taken it and ended up with often catastrophic health harms. Um, to the dealers, they, they don't really care. Uh, they're just sort of testing out an, a new product to see whether it, it, people like it or not. Uh, but often it's the um, pre-hospital setting, which is sort of uh, is the first port of call to deal with these clusters of acute presentations. And as you mentioned, one of the, the, the common features is really marked agitation, uh, psychosis, uh, distress. You know, people can be really uh, very unwell um, at that first point of contact with health services. Absolutely, indeed. And so we've mentioned it, sort of the new front line of healthcare interacting with these, with, with these presentations. And, and so um, some of the, the domains, certainly pre-hospital, um, prison, my, my brother uh, works as a prison pastor, and he, he, he speaks of some of the, yeah, of the pr profound drug use around spice and and other psychoactive substances within the prison, um, GPs, G, GP services, and and to your mind, is there any other sort of front? Is is this the new front front line of healthcare for for, for this card array of patients? Well, uh, the the front line stretches even further than that, actually. So you mentioned prisons, which are very important. So custodial settings have seen a particular issue, as you mentioned, around a group of drugs. Uh, called synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonists. And you mentioned the word spice, which is a, the term that's often used to de describe them. And I haven't actually put the, that, that group of drugs into the sedative stimulant or hallucinogenic group, because actually um, that group can have all three effects. Uh, and it's very hard because they're so chemically diverse uh, to put them in any one of those three groups. So they almost sit as a group on their own and have been causing, as you mentioned, particular um, problems within custodial settings and with homeless populations. But the health front line goes, goes further. So it goes as far as, um, you mentioned primary care, uh, I would add to that sexual health services. I'd also add social services, which uh, are often um, sort of uh, are contacted when people have had particularly uh, difficult uh, experiences with these drugs. Um, and to be honest, you know, young people can present it in many, many different places. Uh, uh, so, for example, uh, student health services are, are, are another uh, area that we need to think about in terms of making sure pe that, that clinicians have the, the, the right skills and knowledge uh, to both detect and also uh, manage harms from these substances. Absolutely, indeed. So, something you just mentioned there, Owen, around the, the homeless population and um, certainly, it's been my experience as well that there's there's a card array of patients within the homeless population that that seem to ingest not only these drugs in in in, um, in single use, but certainly in combination. Uh, I, I want to say combination therapy. I'm not entirely sure it's it's therapy, but um, would you say social? I understand this is maybe a more clinical psychologist question, but would you say there's there's, there's certain sort of mapping of social deprivation onto drug addiction 
uh, from cases that you see at the clinic or is that not necessarily the case? Well, what we're actually seeing is very interesting, which is we're seeing different drugs being used uh, by different populations. So again, to return to heroin for a moment, heroin has always been associated uh, with deprivation uh, and the scars, uh, that's the spice, as you mentioned, is also uh, very strongly linked to homeless populations. Uh, and these, these drugs are uh, relatively cheap, they're potent, and um, they are often targeted at people who are particularly vulnerable. Um, what we're seeing is though we're seeing patterns of um, drug use in other groups as well. So, for example, in men who have sex with men, we're seeing specific drugs being used to enhance uh, sexual performance and pleasure. And those are particularly drugs like uh, GHB and methamphetamine. Uh, in young uh, heterosexual clubbers, we're obviously seeing the use of things like ketamine, MDMA, cocaine. And so what's happening is we're seeing different profiles of drug use in different parts of the community. Indeed. So, so you talk about, you know, about the combinations of drugs um, in, in certain uh, sexual groupings um, and or certain kind of way of, of populations. Now, so um, this probably sometimes brings along with it its own its own challenges, uh, I suppose. And, and what I'd sort of like to ask you and, and, and get from you is, 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 you know, these combination drugs such as a stimulant and a sedative together, such as maybe cocaine um, and ketamine or alcohol and um, and and maybe a um, a, a different a, a different stimulant um, such as um, cocaine seems to be a regular attender in a lot of the presentations we see. Um, how how do these how do these combinations are there, are there classical combinations that you see um, and or more more disparate combinations sort of more on the fringes. So that's a really good question. I mean, I think the first point um, that, that, that you, you raise is about polydrug use. And the vast majority of uh, people who come asking for help at our clinic are using more than one substance. Not necessarily in a dependent way, um, but uh, often in a combination, as, as you describe. And the problem with this is that uh, firstly, the more substances you use concurrently, uh, the greater the risk uh, of harm uh, due to interactions. The second thing is that it also makes it more difficult for the for staff to understand what's going on. So if someone has taken a stimulant and a sedative, they may cycle through periods of being very agitated and alert, followed by periods of drowsiness, then returning to periods of uh, overstimulation. Uh, and that can be very challenging to manage clinically um, because you're, you're not quite sure what's been uh, ingested. There are some classic combinations. So uh, the first one is alcohol uh, with everything. So alcohols are, very, are most widely used psychoactive uh, uh, drug uh, and we see the vast majority of our patients uh, consuming alcohol and will often consume alcohol with other drugs. So alcohol and cocaine is a very particular uh, combination. Um, as, as I'm sure you're aware, that when those two are co-ingested, uh, they, they 
interact to, to form a third substance called gasoline, which itself is a psychoactive drug and can have particularly sort of cardiotoxic effects. Some of the other combinations we see, so uh, a, a, a combination we see in what's sometimes described as the chemsex um, uh, area is a GHB and uh, methamphetamine. Uh, that's that's a very uh, sort of commonly used combination for sexual enhancement. Uh, we also see uh, in the clubbing scene things like MDMA and ketamine uh, being used uh, concurrently. So within, again, within the different drug-using populations, there are common combinations, and those often come with um, quite unpredictable uh, harms, which is a real challenge, particularly uh, in the pre-hospital setting. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more, actually, Owen. And some of the unpredictable presentations you do see um, can be, like you said, for, uh, completely on the spectrum, really. So very much um, from hyperarousal to deeply sedated um, and anywhere in, in between. And and so, yeah, very difficult to not only predict, but treat uh, in, in the moment um, as, as as well. But that, those those that's fascinating. And those classical presentations are, are really sort of good to know. Um, so one of one of the fatal um, aspects of drug ingestion and polydrug ingestion that that I've seen as a clinician Owen, is around sort of this, the hyperpyrexic states and 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 the serotonin syndromes that that you know and almost this irreversible hyperpyrexia that just you really can't get on top of or or, or cool down. Um, could you sort of speak to that condition and 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 sort of why why that occurs? So, yeah, this is an absolutely critical point. So uh, let, let's talk about serotonin syndrome first. So essentially serotonin syndrome is a, is a, a description for when there, there's too much active serotonin and uh, there's a range of uh, symptoms present, uh, which can include, uh, but not always include, but can include uh, hyperpyrexia, uh, increased muscle tone, uh, clonus, um, uh, and uh, agitation and delirium. Now, you tend to see this obviously more commonly when people have taken drugs that release uh, extra serotonin. So uh, these tend to be the stimulant drugs. Um, so what we would typically see is someone who's perhaps used methamphetamine or MDMA or cocaine. And the risks are increased if people are also taking serotonin-boosting uh, medications. So there is a certainly a theoretical risk that if someone's taking an SSRI uh, antidepressant, for example, and then takes stimulants on top, then that could increase their risk of um, uh, serotonin syndrome. Um, one of the complexities about serotonin syndrome is it can um, pre present really with quite a range of severity. So the majority of cases, certainly the ones that I've seen, um, are, are usually self-limiting. So uh, the symptoms are relatively mild. Uh, they need careful monitoring, but within 12 to 24 hours, uh, they, they improve without um, significant intervention. Um, but the uh, this level of severity can be much, much greater than that. And uh, I'm sure you have had experience yourself of seeing people who, you know, really need very rapid um, medical care uh, tr and transfer to uh, intensive care. So it's it's one of those 
uh, quite um, tricky diagnosis to make because often when you first see someone, uh, particularly in a pre-hospital setting, they may have just taken drugs. So they may be a little bit confused. They may be a bit hot if they've just come out of a club. Um, and it's, it, it makes it hard. You know, there are a lot of confounders in terms of the diagnosis. But I would encourage colleagues to always bear in mind serotonin syndrome because it can develop uh, the symptoms and the severity can develop quite rapidly. Indeed, absolutely. So something you you mentioned earlier, actually, as well, is, is around this range of potency that uh, that is 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 otherwise unknown prior to ingesting ingesting the drugs, and also um, something we've we've spoken about before, which is sort of the increasing accessibility uh, or access to drugs over over the internet, over over the over the dark web, and, and you know, and, and not being able to necessarily quality assure. What, what what indeed you're getting at all from the internet, uh, or indeed or indeed its potency? Have you have you seen a very much a change in trend of uh, acquisition of of drugs over this modality over over time? Well, I think this has been an absolute game changer. Uh, certainly in our clinic, we have seen over the last uh, five six years um, a set of changes. So the first change was people going um, to the internet. And that was either the dark net, which is an encrypted part of the internet uh, to buy drugs there, or when legal highs were um, wide, more, more widely available, um, people were buying them as research chemicals um, off uh, ClearNet uh, websites. Over the last couple of years, though, the, the um, practices have changed and people now are very much buying uh, their drugs on social media uh, apps, so things like Snapchat, uh, Instagram, and there is a whole sort of uh, coded lexicon um, of uh, drug sale uh, terms, which are now used and actually change quite rapidly. Uh, it's quite hard to keep up with the w w with the different terms. But they're, 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 this really appears to have uh, uh, taken hold, certainly in our younger users uh, that we see at the Club Drug Clinic. And so uh, in, in the way that younger people are used to using their mobile phones for everything, really, you buy a ticket, you order a takeaway, you, you know, drugs have now um, joined uh, those, th those other activities as for some, quite a normalized uh, way to, to, to order uh, drugs. Now, as you mentioned, the quality control of illicit drugs has, has never been uh, 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 very high. Um, but what we are seeing at the moment, uh, as I mentioned a bit earlier, was with some of the novel psychoactive substances, that actually these, these substances are completely new. Uh, and so no one has any idea whether they will be relatively uh, harm-free or whether they'll cause catastrophic um, problems for the users. And that introduces a greater level of risk uh, than we've seen with, with some of the more established drugs. And one of, the, one of the problems we're seeing is that some of these MPS are now being missold or substituted or cut into some of the traditional drugs. So things like cocaine, um, we're now finding are being sort of cut 
with some of these MPS simply because it's easier to make. It's easier and cheaper to make some of the MPS than it is to, to get cocaine all the way from Colombia. So the, the dealers have a, a, a definite uh, desire to use some of these cheaper drugs, but the harms of the drugs are really poorly uh, un understood. So, so just mentioning the harms as we're coming into land um, on the conversation, Owen, there's a few things I'd, I'd like to signpost around Project Neptune and a few of the other areas, but just looking at the harms for a second and, um, and like I said, the new harms as emergent drug patterns evolve, but also the harms that maybe we as hospital care providers may, may not see, which is the, some of the chronic harms around ketamine bladder, sort of the GBH detoxifications, some of the psychosis that we might that we actually may see um, from sort of long-term synthetic cannab uh, cannabinoids, um, looking at the sort of a, the hallucinogenic uh, persisting perception disorder, um, and and some of the novel psychoactive injecting use. Um, uh, are these new harms sort of seen to you in 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 day-to-day -day practice within the, the clinic? Are, they, are these starting to present to you? Well, they absolutely are, and they are uh, very concerning because, as, as you mentioned, we spent much of today quite rightly talking about the acute presentations, um, which, uh, uh, although the presentations might be quite extreme, the majority of them, I think, will fit within the sort of knowledge of most sort of uh, pre-hospital care staff um, in, in the sense they they will have seen a psychosis before, they will have seen um, extreme agitation before, extreme sedation before. Um, what's happening now is we're beginning to see people use these drugs for long enough that we're beginning to get a sense of what some of the longer-term harms may be. And so we're seeing some quite unusual things. You, you mentioned ketamine bladder. So uh, we're seeing a situation where people who use ketamine over prolonged periods at reasonable doses are uh, getting a sort of ulcerative cystitis and presenting with dysuria, um, uh, hematuria, uh, or polyuria. Uh, and these sort of three symptoms, uh, if you don't ask, uh, young people tend not to mention them. Or if they do mention them, they're often dismissed as a, as a urinary tract infection. But actually what we're seeing is quite high numbers of our uh, uh, habitual ketamine users experiencing these harms. And similarly with some of the other drugs you mentioned, HPPD. So this is a, a, a sort of ongoing, um, typically visual, a set of visual distortions that people can get after using hallucinogens or sometimes other drugs as well. And we're only just beginning to get a sense of what the size of the problem is uh, and uh, we still have relatively poor understanding of, of the mechanism of action of some of these harms. So the next five, ten years, um, we, we'll really, I think, begin to understand some of the, the chronic harms uh, better. But at the moment, we're, we're, we're still seeing so many new drugs uh, come onto the market each year that we're constantly playing catch-up. And that, of course, is a, is a challenge for clinicians but also a, a terrible risk for users. Indeed, absolutely, absolutely. So, so um, just 
um, for, for, from a uh, an educational perspective, Owen, just to signpost people, one of the most useful uh, platforms, which certainly Owen's advocated in the past, is um, is uh, around acute presentations. Um, you can find so, a lot more information on sites such as Talkspace or indeed the National uh, Poisons Information Service, both of which uh, you have to register. I believe if you're a, a registered healthcare professional, you can access both, uh, and both will give um, will give the most up-to-date information on this on, on the presentation, the sequelae of the presentation, and indeed the the chemical components of of acute presentations. And then actually something that um, that I believe um, that Owen has been working on for the past few years is Project Neptune, if I'm right in thinking, which is Novel Psychoactive Treatment uh, UK Network. And this is part of the Health Foundation. And what this does is uh, quite rightly so uh, is is improves the evidence based clinical guidance on. Um, on on some of these drugs and the and, and the combination therapy or indeed the, the the poly drug use, but also just takes comprehensive reviews of treatment research um, and evidence based clinical guidance and where evidence is lacking, uh, that's that that expert consensus. It, it, does that still take up quite a bit of your time? Are you still quite active in in that domain, Owen? Uh, very much so, and um, if, I, if I could put in a, a brief plug, uh, that if you go on the Neptune Clinical Guidance uh, website, uh, there are some free e-learning modules. Uh, there are seven of them, uh, and some of them, uh, there's an introductory model, module, and then there are modules on acute harms from each of the groups we've talked about, so stimulant, sedative, hallucinogens, and SCRAS, and each of the modules takes about 15 to 20 minutes, so they're relatively uh, quick to do. And as I said, they're open access. Um, we've had about 5,000 uh, uh, staff complete these modules now with very, very high um, levels of positive feedback. And then the other quick plug, if again, if I may, is that uh, through Cambridge University Press, we, uh, myself and a colleague, Dima Abdurrahim, um, are releasing a textbook on club drugs and novel psychoactive substances. It's described as a clinical handbook. It's got lots and lots of case studies uh, as part of, uh, of, of the book. And that's going to be released, I think, in November uh, 2020. That's absolutely fantastic. Um, absolutely fantastic. So um, a couple of things we'll have on the show notes, uh, the e-learning open access um, website so i'll put uh, the the neptune clinical guidance uh, um, web address onto onto the show notes so people can access it there and 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 also access the 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 open access e-learning because i think that's absolutely fantastic as a as, as a, a, a democratized and free uh, resource just just to make sure that, that you've got that healthy baseline when when seeing some of these presentations out uh, out in out in practice so owen just 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 to finish off i i know you're part of the sort of central northwest london network but where where could people where can people find you or indeed the club drug drug clinic so uh, in terms of finding me, I'm always very happy to receive emails uh, from people. So just you, if you just Google me, uh, my email will come up. Uh, in terms of the Club Drug Clinic, we uh, are slightly uh, bound by uh, uh, boroughs. And so we take any referrals from Westminster or Kensington, Chelsea. Um, 
at the sexual health clinics, uh, fortunately, that we, we're not borough-bound. So in those services, we can see people from anywhere. Um, but I'm always very happy to discuss a clinical case. And in fact, myself and my colleagues at the Club Drug Clinic very regularly get calls from any departments, uh, from clinicians from all sorts of uh, different specialties, uh, asking advice about particular presentations. And we see that very much as, as part of our job. So uh, if someone does have a clinical case that they wanted to uh, discuss, we'd be very happy to hear from you. Oh, that's fantastic. I'll, I'll put in the show notes, I'll put uh, your contact details and indeed the, uh, the, clinical, uh, the Neptune Clinical Guidance um, website as well onto the, onto the show notes. So that will be easy to find. Oh, you know, just, just left with saying, um, I just really appreciate your time today. This is really one of those topics which can't be spoken about enough, really, because, because of, of its occult nature and its constantly evolving nature. It certainly is something which is not only worth bringing into light, but just just fantastic to get your your perspective um, and and just to, just to um, just to get your 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 thoughts on on contemporary practice. So a, a, a real thanks to you today. It's been a pleasure, Owen. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're listening to the Pre Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. 